Which please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are watching online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also at the hangar in Montana. Now let me tell you a little story as you turn about this uh, one couple that watched us online together for the last three years in Connecticut. So they were in Connecticut, other side of the country. They've been joining us online uh, for the last three years. They said every time I would welcome those that are joining us online, they give each other a high five and say, he's talking to me. And I had the privilege they just moved out here to California. I had the chance to baptize the two of them and uh, her mother, uh, the three of them, uh, on, on Wednesday, and then marry this couple on Friday. So they watch us online from Connecticut for the last three years, move to California, baptize them on Wednesday, marry them on Friday, and they're going to become a part of our church family face-to-face -face now after all those years of uh, watching online. So thought that was a great, great story. Now we're continuing with our series called The Hope Quotient. And you'll see our mission statement there, finding purpose in Christ and community for the journey. And the biblical principle we're looking at today goes perfectly with our mission statement. Refuse to go it alone. That is, we discover God's will for our lives, his plan for our lives, um, uh, his purpose for our lives. We find that in Christ. But then we don't fulfill that by ourselves. We refuse to go it alone. We connect with each other, with other Christ followers in community, and that enables us to last fulfilling God's will for our lives uh, for the journey all the way to eternity in heaven. His plan for us is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us. Oikos, Greek word for household, the eight to 15 in our sphere of influence. And so refuse to go it alone. Do it in community and that will enable us to do it for the journey. I love that African proverb I shared with you a few weeks ago, that if you want to go someplace quickly, go alone. But if you want to go far, take somebody with you. Go with somebody. I mean, if you want to go someplace fast, I tell you, when we had six kids all at home, we never go anywhere fast. And now when they're all home on the holidays and we've got the in-law, you know, their son-in-law and daughter-in-laws and there's and grandchildren thrown in, there's like, I don't even, I lose the number, 12, 14, somewhere around that number uh, with us with two on the way. Whenever we want to go somewhere, we don't go anywhere fast. I always say, we're off like a herd of snails. That's my saying, I always say. And we don't do anything fast. So if you want to get someplace fast, go alone. But if you want to go far for the journey, if you want to last in doing something, refuse to go it alone. Now, God looked at his creation. Everything he said was good except for one thing. It's not good for a man to be alone. He wasn't just talking about marriage. He was talking about all relationships. It's not good for men, women uh, to be alone. It is not good to be alone. There's something within us that just craves to be with other people. Uh, maybe uh, you remember how many of you saw the movie uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks, and uh, he plays a guy that gets on a deserted Pacific island. His plane crashes, and so he's washed ashore, and there's nobody on this island. He's all by himself, and he so craves human companionship that he finds a volleyball that gets washed ashore, and he names the volleyball Wilson. And, you know, yesterday I went to Big Five saying, I wonder if I can, does Wilson still make volleyballs? And everything was Adidas. And then I dug through there, and lo and behold, there is a Wilson volleyball, and not just any Wilson volleyball. They call it the castaway version. They even have Wilson's face on the other side. Uh, is that great? They sell these things. This is the Wilson ball. And if you uh, didn't see the movie, they, he draws a picture of a guy's face on it, and then he makes this his companion because he so desperately 
doesn't want to be alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. The Bible says we can do more together than what any of us can do alone. That's why it's good to have our church grow and, and have more and more people. Jesus said, my desire is that they have fruit and that they have much fruit. The more fruit we bear, the more we grow, the more it pleases God because the more impact and the more work we can do for him. Now, small churches are wonderful, but large churches have a certain advantage of being able to have a better return for their labor. Together, we can get more done than any of us could have done by ourselves. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Now, this carries with it the whole idea of a journey in Israel 2,000 years ago, I guess 3,500 years ago, uh, a journey in Israel, 1500 B.C. Because as they traveled uh, together, it would be much better to go together for the journey rather than alone. Because if one falls down, and it probably carries with it the idea of falling into a pit or into a ravine. And if they fall into that, then if you got stuck down there overnight, it would get cold in the Judean uh, nights. Its climate is very similar to ours in Southern California where they have warm days, but it gets real cold at night. You could actually lose your life if somebody wasn't there to help you get up out of that hole. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. Again, the idea is that on a cold Israeli night 3,500 years ago, in the same way we have cold Southern California nights, even if the day is warm, it'll get cold at night, it says that two of them can keep warm together. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered. There would be the danger of bandits and marauders and robbers, like you see in, in Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan. So one may be overpowered, but if there are two or more, if you're in a group on the journey, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We believe that third strand can be God, but it also, in the Hebrew, can mean multiple people. The more the merrier, the more the better. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If you want to fulfill your purpose in Christ, you do it in community, and that enables you to do it for the journey. Helen Keller writes, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. Now tonight we're going to talk about how to handle stress in life, but I want to talk a little bit about it this morning. We're going to talk more about it and how to balance our lives and how to deal with stress uh, this evening. Now we often say, wouldn't it be nice if there was no stress within our lives? But that wouldn't be good because the definition of not having any stress, the technical term is you're dead. The only time we have no stress is when we're dead. The key is not to have zero stress, but the key is to manage it with three things in balance with each other. You'll see the diagram there in your study outline. The first thing you need is a challenge. It's good to have a certain amount of stress. It is a good thing to have challenges in life. In 1982, two Soviet cosmonauts broke a record by spending 211 days in space. Television cameras prepared for the two guys to return. A band waited to wave flags and lead the triumphant parade celebrating the accomplishments of communism. The door opened, the band played, the people cheered, the television cameras zoomed in, and nothing happened. Weak from months of inactivity, the cosmonauts, after 211 days in zero gravity in space, were unable to stand up. 
zero-gravity living had deteriorated their muscles to the point where they had to be carried from their seats. They broke endurance records but could not stand or walk for months because their hearts were no longer strong enough to pump blood even 12 inches to their brains. In response, the Soviets invented what was called a penguin suit, which is basically an athletic suit laced with rubber bands that cause constant resistance. By wearing a penguin suit, muscles continue to develop and are spared from atrophy. Now, I often confess to you, I think to myself, wouldn't it be great to live a zero-gravity life? Uh, no problems, no resistance, no challenges, no stress. But God says we need all that to enjoy life and to fulfill his plans, uh, his will uh, for our lives. We need a challenge. Now, along with that is control. That is, there are certain barriers, certain parameters or boundaries to what we can do. Uh, these are financial limitations or schedule limitations, time limitations. And we need discipline and focus. So we need challenge uh, balanced by uh, control. And then the third thing we need is support, the support of others uh, within this in order to deal with the stress within our lives. Now, most of us have enough controls in our life. I mean, your job has controls on it, uh, taxes, uh, your family responsibilities, the government. I mean, we have enough controls to hold us in check. And most of us have enough challenges to last for a lifetime or for the next thousand years. How many of you have more than enough that you'd like to do than you do have years in order to accomplish it. I mean, we have a thousand years worth of challenges. So we have plenty of challenges. We have plenty of controls. But what we lack and why we have stress within our lives is we lack the support of relationships to bear us up and to support us. In the mid-1960s, the last of the team of brothers who founded the Warner Brothers film empire sold all of his stock for $32 million, the equivalent of roughly $250 million today. After the sale, Jack Warner was sad when no one showed up for his tennis parties anymore. A friend said, Jack, you're so alone in this world. Jack replied, if you have power, you can't have friends. Jack spent more than four decades in an iron-fisted career that earned him a reputation for both brilliant success and jaw-dropping ruthlessness. He once maneuvered in secret to oust his brothers from control of their own company. Harry never spoke to Jack again. Jack was unfaithful in each of his marriages. Yet when his son from his first wife criticized the new wife Jack was cheating on, Jack never spoke to his son again. He not only renounced him, but even wrote him out of his autobiography. At his funeral, so few people attended that the rabbi moved the, surface, the service from the temple to a small chapel upstairs. He was a man of great power, great influence, but absolutely alone. And we need those relationships. We need to refuse to go it alone. Friendships give that support. Robert Putnam, in his famous book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, writes this. The single most common finding from a half century's research on the correlates of life satisfaction, not only in the United States but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. As a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you've cut your risk of dying in the next year in half. 
You know how we always encourage people to join a group, join a Sunday school class, join a Bible study group, join a, join a ministry? Well, basically, I think we need a, a stronger motto for that. Join a group or die. How would that be? You know, we've always tried uh, like the gentle approach and the uh, kind of the mellow, encouraging report. Join it or die. Basically, if you're visiting today and you're not a part of any group, uh, come to the starting point class. Join our church and you won't die in the next year. How's that for motivation? I mean, what a deal. Free lunch, free childcare, and you cut your death rate by 50% in the next year. What a bargain. Um, but we need those relationships. We need that support around us. Probably um, in some ways humorous, but a great example of this is Winston Churchill, the great leader of Great Britain during World War II. He was a very connected man relationally. Uh, he had this very strong marriage, uh, solid family relationships. He had a ton of close friends and a large number of successful relationships at work. On the other hand, he had terrible health habits, just terrible. Uh, he smoked cigars all the time. He drank too much. He had an unhealthy diet. He had bizarre sleep habits, and he never, ever worked out. Yet he lived to be 90 years old uh, when he died. His doctor once asked him whether he ever exercised, and Churchill replied, I get all the exercise I need being a pallbearer for all my friends who do run and who do <laughs> exercise. Now, the... the <laughs> The point of that story is not drink too much and have an unhealthy diet and smoke cigars all the time. You're like, what a great church. I like this, you know. No, he probably could have lived to 100 if he had had healthy habits in addition to his support system. But the, the whole point of that is, is that it really makes a difference uh, to be connected to other people. I came across this just yesterday from the Prudential Life Insurance uh, Company. One of the secrets to longevity, according to Canadian and U.S. psychologists, is having a sense of purpose. As health spans extend, maintaining purpose will be important for both psychological and physical health. This is why, you know, Pastor Randy, our senior adult pastor, it's such a wonderful thing where he challenges us in our pre-retirement and retirement years to continue to, to have a sense of God's will and plan uh, for our lives. Uh, what, what a great thing. Finding a direction for life and setting overarching goals for what you want to achieve can help you actually live longer regardless of when you find your purpose, says Professor Patrick Hill of Carleton University. So the earlier someone comes to a direction in life, the earlier these protective effects may be able to occur. And so our, our, our purpose, our mission in life is to find that in Christ and then to refuse to go it alone, to connect in community with each other, and that will enable us to fulfill it for the journey that God has intended for us right on to eternity in heaven, to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us there. Uh, I love this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 23. David was a man that God had great plans for. He had anointed him at a young age to be the next king of Israel. God had a, a will for David. He has a plan for his life, just like he does for each one of us. But he was in a wilderness period where he was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill him. And I'm sure he lost sight of that vision that God had given him, that mission in his life. He loses track of it. And it says that Saul's son, the man trying to kill him, his son Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Isn't that a beautiful verse? 
Uh, when we lose track of our way, when, when we begin to think, does God really have a mission for me to fulfill? Does he really have a plan for my life? And we're out in the wilderness and we just feel like, you know, is there any point to it all? We need people around us that can help us find our strength in God. The best investment you'll ever make, Proverbs 13, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Uh, Bryce Jessup, I love this. He's the founder of Jessup University, a Christian university up in uh, Sacramento. Uh, John Jackson, who was part of our church for many years, uh, is now the president of that university. And Bryce Jessup says, dream a dream and build a team. Isn't that a great line? Dream a dream. What is the dream God has for your life? What is his plan for your life? Now build a team around you to help you fulfill that particular dream. The Bible says we need five different relationships. And as I go through these five, maybe write down the person that accomplishes this in your life. And if you've got it empty, maybe your homework assignment for this summer is to find somebody to fit that particular need or to connect with a group. You know, I know sometimes summers is just as busy as the rest of the time of the year. But you know, it's interesting how there is a little bit of a margin there where you can try new things during the summer. And maybe this summer you should try out a Sunday school class, either before or after the 945 service. Catch one of the classes that are listed there at the end of your program. Or uh, join a Bible study group or connect in some ministry where you can connect with other people. And so if you don't have somebody in these groups, and some of these may overlap, and one person may meet more than one of these particular categories, but write that person down. If you don't have somebody there, make it your mission this summer to put a name in that blank. The first one are vision casters. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, our chief want or need in life is somebody who shall make us do what we can. Another way to say that is, we need someone who can give us a vision of what we can be. Now I'm gonna use outside examples here in my own life, but there are many examples within our church family of people that fulfill uh, this particular need for me. But I've got this group of pastors, there are six of us from all across the country, similar sized churches, that we get together once a year for two or three days. We always borrow uh, the cabin or beach home or something like that of one of the people within our churches. And these six pastors from all across the country, we get together and we spend three days together just casting vision uh, for our lives. And, and for, for some crazy reason, we keep meeting in Chicago in January. And so we finally got smart on that and met in San Diego uh, this last uh, uh, time that we were together. But there's one pastor of one of the largest churches in Massachusetts and then two pastors from two of the largest uh, churches in Illinois and then uh, a pastor from a large church in San Diego and then a pastor from a large church in Nevada that is now a college university president and then myself and we've done this for years, where two to three days every year we get together somewhere and we just spend those two to three days just challenging each other. What's working in your church? What's effective here? What have you found the most effective way to reach people for Jesus is in this context? Now, how do you deal with this particular issue? And we just spend those three days just challenging each other and casting vision for each other's lives. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah does this. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I sat down during, set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God had given them a vision 
for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on, the Babylonians, what is today the Iraqis, had destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Now it's 140 years later. And uh, now God has placed it on his heart. The walls are still destroyed to cast vision for the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. And its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. He says, God's fingerprints are all over this. He's leading us to do this. And what the king had said to me, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work, which is the theme verse for our momentum campaign. So they began this good work. Who in your life is a vision caster. Write that person's name down right now. Who, who is a vision caster in your life? And let me just tell you, that person will make you uncomfortable. I mean, the people didn't like this message from Nehemiah because it would mean a lot of work and a lot of danger and a lot of effort and a lot of change, okay? You see, a vision caster says, here we are, but here's where we need to get so that eternity is different in heaven, you see, the vision casters in your life, I describe it this way. They make you have as few regrets as possible when you get to heaven. We're very comfortable and set in our ways this side of heaven. But a vision caster comes along and says, when you stand in eternity someday, it will be all about reaching people for Christ, not about our comfort here in this life. And so they cast the vision so that when we get to heaven, we have as few regrets as possible, and we praise God for the vision casters who challenged us as to how to get to heaven and to take other people with us when we go there. Now, number two is the soul sharpeners. Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Heard a great line this past week. The best way to grow is to be the least gifted person in the room. Best way to grow, you can fill in the blanks. So you can put different things in there. The best way to grow smarter is to be the dumbest person in the room. The best way to be godly, to grow in godliness, is to be the least godly person in the room. Now, I tell you, I don't seek out those situations. Naturally, I like situations where I'm the most gifted in the room or the smartest in the room, and they're few and far between, but you look for them, you know? You try to find them. You know, that's why people like to go to Vegas, because they're the godliest person in the room. You know, look at her eyes, hey, look at me. You know, we, we seek out situations because they're more comfortable. But that's no way to grow. The best way to grow is to be the least gifted in the room. My dad always said, own the house that's the least attractive on the block. 
and all the other nicer houses will bring up your housing value. If you go to our house, we're on the south side of Lincoln Park, and, and, and we're kind of an average house. We're in the middle of all these gorgeous homes, and, and, and we are dragging down their values even as they drag ours up, you know. And, and so the same thing is true. You want to be holy. Be in the presence, be the least holy person in the room. Be in the presence of people that will sharpen you, that will challenge you uh, to be more effective. Uh, Ray Johnson writes, if we let insecurities drive us away from tough circumstances, we will never grow. You know, the biggest excuse I ever hear for why people don't like to go to Sunday school classes or Bible study groups, they say, oh, Pastor Glenn, I just don't know enough of the Bible. And they have this idea, and let me just tell you, if you're in that situation, do not be afraid. They think if you show it up at a Sunday school class or a Bible study, and you, and you walk in there, uh, and they're going to say, hey, you're new. Quote Ezekiel 18 by heart uh, for us, okay? Hey, look, you're new. Uh, quote the genealogy of Jesus, and we're going to laugh every time you make a mistake. That absolutely will not happen. But I tell you, the best way to grow in your knowledge of the Bible, be the least knowledgeable of the Bible person in the room. And that's the way, and that's the way you grow. And if we let our insecurities make us run from those uncomfortable circumstances, we will never grow. Who's a soul sharpener in your life? Write that name down there. Number three is models and mentors. I love this quote by Oliver Goldsmith. People seldom improve when they have no model but themselves to copy after. Isn't that a great quote? We seldom improve when we have no model but ourselves to copy after. My junior year in, um, in high school, we didn't have a cross-country team. We had a track team. I'd run track freshman, sophomore year. Had, had no, had no cross-country team. So I just was a team of one by myself. And I just, the coach would enter me in meets, and I'd run meets. The next year, we started a team, but I was just a team all by myself my junior year. And so I trained all by myself. And I remember one day after a couple of months of just training all alone, the coach put me on a clock on the track. And I was slow as molasses because I was just in this pace that satisfied me. I'd say, Glenn, is this fast enough? And Glenn would say, yes, Glenn, it is. And he puts a clock on me. He says, my goodness, Glenn, you are so slow. Well, the problem is I didn't have anybody around me uh, to spur me on. And you seldom improve when you have no model but yourself to copy after. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He says in chapter 4, Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Oswald Chambers says the way we grow in holiness is to be around people more holy than ourselves. I had a great chance at mentorship when I was in seminary. I've told you about him before, a fellow by the name of David Midwood. He just went home to be with the Lord a few months ago from cancer, and it's a great loss within my life. And uh, when I was at seminary near Boston during the week, Monday through Friday, I had a couple of jobs, and then I was in seminary, and so I was going to seminary classes Monday through Friday, and then I worked as a cross-country coach at Gordon College, coach cross-country there, and I was also a teacher's assistant in the preaching department there at the seminary. But then every Friday afternoon, I'd get in my car and drive to the border between New Hampshire and Massachusetts to a, a town called Haverhill, Massachusetts, and there was a church called West Congregational Church. And I was their director of Christian education on the weekends for three years when I was at seminary. And I wasn't just their director of Christian education. I lived with the pastor and his wife in their home in the parsonage every weekend. 
Uh, David Midwood and Louise, they were like 30 years old. I was 21 years old when I started seminary. And uh, they were just a few years ahead of me in, in ministry. Um, he was a very good friend of Tim Keller. If you're familiar with Tim Keller, this is his best friend. Tim Keller, famous pastor in New York City. And, um, uh, and, and David would just mentor me. I, I'd have the book learning during the week, but then on the weekend I would just watch him in action. Watch him and his wife. And then Kimberly, when we got married, eventually would watch them um, in their relationship as a ministry couple and watch him in action and literally live under his, his uh, roof in order to be mentored uh, by him. And what a great advantage and blessing that was. So who is your model, your mentor? Write that name in there. And if not, make it your summer assignment to be able to put a name in that blank. Number four, our heart healers. Now these are our favorite ones. We love the heart healers. They're much more fun to be around than the vision casters and the soul sharpeners, even than the models or the mentors. Paul, Dr. Paul Tournier writes, it is impossible to overemphasize the immense need that men have to be really listened to, to be taken seriously, to be understood. No one can develop freely in this world and find a full life without feeling understood by at least one other person. That's what Jonathan was for David. Chapter 20 and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Who are those heart healers, those people that comfort and encourage you to help you heal during times of brokenness? Uh, my two best friends in seminary, one was named David Holwick, he's a pastor in New Jersey now, and one is, is John Hanford that I've talked about before. And David Holwick, he is a heart healer for me. When I spend time with him, when I go to visit with him, or when we talk on the phone, he never challenges me, and I love him for it. It is awesome. No challenge. I mean, when we're together, it's just like, Glenn, you're awesome, man. You are doing the greatest job. You are amazing, and I love to talk to him. It's just something about it. He, he's the guy that I'm drawn to. In contrast to John Hanford, our other friend, the three of us were best friends. John Hanford was the best man in our wedding, and I've told you about him before, very politically connected. His uncle was Bob Dole, who ran for president in 1996. And his aunt, Elizabeth Dole, she ran for president as well. He eventually was appointed ambassador of religious freedom by President Bush. And very passionate guy, very vision-casting kind of guy. And when I'm with John Hanford, I have a good time. But man, I always go away saying, I need to be such a better person than I am. And so for some crazy reason, I talk to Dave Holwick a lot more than I talk to John Hanford. I mean, <laughs> Dave Holwick, I call him like five times as much as I call John Hanford. Because I think we need a three-to-one ratio, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that in just a moment, of heart healers to the vision casters, the soul sharpeners, the motivators. Number five, the motivators. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. What a great quote this is. Oscar Wilde said, true friends stab you in the front. Is that a great line? Instead of stab you in the back, true friends will stab you in the front. Okay, do you have a, a motivator like that? Um, I didn't want to put this in writing, but Ray Johnson calls it a tail kicker is what he puts. I, I would say it verbally, but I didn't want to put it in writing. seemed unholy or something like that to put it in here. But that's what it is. Uh, somebody that will get you going, that will motivate you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, this verse kind of shows that three-to-one uh, ratio. 
And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Okay? These are the motivators. These are the vision casters. These are the soul sharpeners. They, you, know, you know, when we're idle, when we're not fulfilling God's will and plan and purpose for our lives, when we're thinking about me, 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 and we're inward focused rather than being outward focused to how can I go to heaven and take others with me to heaven, okay, that's when we get idle. That's when we have time in our hands, and that's when we become disruptive. And so we need the motivators, the vision casters, the soul sharpeners to help us to warn the idle that are not connecting with God's plan for their life because they are becoming disruptive. But now, look at the three-to-one ratio. Encourage the disheartened. That's a heart healer. Help the weak. That's a heart healer. Be patient with everyone. That's a heart healer. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into Scripture here, but do you see the three-to-one ratio? For every warner of us when we're idle and disruptive, we need three that encourage us when we're disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Who do you have that you can write in that category? If not, summer assignment, let's find somebody to fill each of those final, those five roles and relationships that the Bible talks about.